Coming up on Tech Nation, we're talking about good medicine, health, ethics, and innovation. It's a collaboration between Bioethics International and Scientific American. We'll hear from Jennifer Miller and Jeremy Abbott. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, talks about existing drugs which are being repurposed in the fight against COVID. It's faster than developing a new one. And what gets us to stick with all that personal health technology we need? Dario Health has the secret sauce. It's called humans. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2012, I interviewed Salman Khan, the author of The One World Schoolhouse, Education Reimagined, and the founder of the Khan Academy, a nonprofit with the mission of providing free, high-quality education online for anyone, anywhere. You may surmise what the Khan Academy is. What's important is what it isn't. It isn't just a bunch of YouTube videos. That's right. Actually, it started even before the YouTube videos. I was writing a, a little bit of software for my cousins to give them practice problems and then me as their tutor to keep track of what they were doing. And the first videos were really there to complement these. That's why the first videos, there's things like, welcome to level one linear equation. Like, what's level one? I was like, well, I had a little software module called level one. But the videos took a life of their own. But then once we got significant funding, the vision is actually to continue to build on the interactive side. So now we're a 36-person organization, and two-thirds of that is on the software engineering side, building out the, the interactive quizzes, the simulations. We just launched computer science, the dashboards for teachers. So the videos are still part of it, but I would say they're about a third of what we are. If we looked at the world, if you looked at the world together as an educated world, not just a literate world, how would it be different than it is today? Almost every major problem that you can think of, especially if you think of geopolitical problems, had traced to lack of education. And if you go into parts of the world, you know, you go to the Indian subcontinent, some of these countries, the literacy rate is low and it's ridiculously low amongst women. And so, and a lot of those, you know, and when people don't have access to that kind of uplifting things in their life, they, they are more susceptible to extremism, to radicalism. Uh, they can be controlled, so to speak, by warlords and, and politicians and, and whoever else. So, yeah, I can imagine a world, you know, it's, it's a world, and I actually talk a little bit about this in the book, it's not a just about, you know, this moral argument that we should be uplifting more. There is a I guess, a pseudo-selfish argument that our entire world will be safer. But, but then there's even a better argument that, you know, right now we are probably educating, really educating, especially on a global basis, a small fraction of the people who have potential. And that small fraction are the ones that they're giving us the new therapies and medicine and the new, uh, you know, the new internet startups that are making our lives better. Imagine what happens to the world if we can increase the number of people who understand medicine and science and technology and, and, and writing and, and the humanities by an order of magnitude of 10. We'll, we'll have 10 times better advancements in science, 10 times better advancements in the arts, and, and that'll just make this world a richer place. Well, you've got bachelor's 
bachelor's and master's degrees in computer science and engineering, as uh, do I yes. am proud to say. <laughs> um, now, engineering always tells us uh, when we design a system, we have to include all the users and all the stakeholders or the design will never work. Well, if the ticket of inclusion in this life is education, then any world system we design has to be able to include everybody. The education has been one of these things. It's actually been the determining factor between the haves and the have-nots. And what's exciting about now this time in history is that historically, whenever you want to do something for the underserved or the poor, what you do is you say, okay, what do the rich have? And say, well, that's expensive. So let me create a cheap version of that, that I can give to the poor or the underserved. And, and, and that's better than nothing. But what's exciting about some of what, you know, hopefully we're doing at Khan Academy and other folks are doing, and I write a lot about it in the book, you know, Bill Gates famously uses this resource with his own children and even himself, and he can afford tutors. Uh, <laughs> but 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 now the same. He's not resource, doing it to save money. He's not <laughs> doing it to idea. save money. And he just finds that this is the thing that his children connect with. But this, now, for the first time in history, what some of the most affluent, connected people in the world have access to, a child in, in a village in India can have access to. That it's not a cheaper version. It's the exact, a formerly unschooled kid in sub-Saharan Africa can now have access to the same resources as Bill Gates' children. You've been listening to a 2012 Tech Nation interview with Salman Khan, the author of The One World Schoolhouse, Education Reimagined, and the founder of Khan Academy. Today, its channel on YouTube has more than 5.6 million subscribers, and the Khan Academy videos have been viewed more than 1.7 billion times. I'm Moira again. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Yale University Medical School professor Jennifer Miller and Scientific American's Jeremy Abbott talk about good medicine, health, ethics, and innovation. Then Tech Nation Health chief correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the many existing drugs being repurposed in order to treat COVID. And while 30 to 40 percent of all personal health tech products are pretty quickly abandoned. Rick Anderson from Dario Health tells us how they get 80% of users to stick with it through at least the first year. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Jennifer Miller and Jeremy Abbott. Jennifer and Jeremy, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you both here. Great to be back. Great to be back. Always a pleasure. Of course, you were never here at the same time before. <laughs> that is correct. So this is new. This is new. And we're, so that means we're actually going to talk about a new collaboration between Bioethics International and Scientific American. And so let's talk about a project you created and you've published together called Good Medicine. Now, what is that? Good Medicine is the, the product of, of, of a collaboration between Scientific American's Custom Media Division and 
Bioethics International to advance the discussion of the intersection of health, health innovation, and ethics, and really hoping to um, gain a wider audience for one of the most critical conversations of our time. So what is that is actually a good question, Moira. I think we're still in the process of fleshing that out. Um, but what we all kind of agree on, the team that's working on the, on good medicine, is that we needed a space where all the different stakeholders in healthcare and medicine could come together to discuss, identify, and explore the ethics challenges and patient-centricity challenges in healthcare, and not just discuss problems, but explore solutions, um, ways of fixing them. At the core of this project um, is something called the Good Pharma Scorecard, which is, you've been working on this for a long time, Jennifer. You've been on the show before about it. What is it? How did it start? And what is it today? The Good Pharma Scorecard is an index that functions akin to the U.S. News and World Report rankings of U.S. colleges. Um, it's akin to the U.S. News and World Report ranking of colleges or the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. It's an index designed to rank pharmaceutical companies on their bioethics performance. So it does two things. It helps set bioethics standards, define what good pharmaceutical companies can and should look like, and then uses those standards or measures to benchmark pharmaceutical companies, to benchmark their bioethics performance, to both recognize where there are best or good practices, but also incent or catalyze change where needed. And then we track or benchmark progress year after year on our measures. So we look at things about like um, data sharing or clinical trial transparency. Are pharmaceutical companies disclosing or sharing all of the results from their clinical trials, all the safety and efficacy information about new medicines and vaccines. How accessible are new medicines and vaccines around the world? Why is it important that they share clinical trials data? I mean, agencies like the FDA and, and other agencies around the world look at the, that data. Why should the public have access to it? Right. So the Good Pharma Scorecard aims to comprehensively address all of the bioethics concerns about pharmaceutical companies. But currently, the public piece focuses on clinical trial transparency and data sharing. And we focused on this issue first because of its importance for patient care. We are advocating for evidence-based medicine and you, it's very hard to practice evidence-based medicine if you don't have all of the evidence about a medicine and vaccine in the public space. So we need all the safety and efficacy information which are contained in clinical trial results. And so what we do is we go and we benchmark uh, new products approved by the FDA, whether it's a drug, a biologic, or a vaccine. We find all of the clinical trials that were conducted for FDA approval and then go and measure the percentage of those trials that have public results, whether they're published, reported in a clinical trial registry, and, when the, and whether the actual patient-level data is made available um, to third parties upon request. Well, since only one out of nine drugs make it all the way through to phase three and get approved and become available to patients through the FDA, there's a whole lot of trials that, well, they, you know, they stop short of that success. Are those measured as well? Great question, Moira. Thanks. So we focus on FDA-approved products since those are the ones that patients generally end up taking, end up using to treat their, their diseases and conditions. 
So we're looking at um, the trial supporting newly approved FDA drugs, biologics, and devices. Now, when you were on a few years ago, I remember that not everybody was getting such a good score, but I see now that you have two tied for number one with 100%, Nova Nordisk and, and Roche Genentech. And uh, then as I go down, I see there's a number of them, and this is number four through number nine uh, or number eight. They're circling around 90%, 90 to 92 or 93%. What's missing? Do we know? Right. There's a wide range of scores among the large companies ranging from, you know, below 50% all the way up to 100%, like you mentioned, with Roche and Novo Nordisk tying for first place in last year's rankings. The new rankings, by the way, are coming out soon. Um, and we look at three measures to calculate that composite transparency score. So we look at first whether all the trials that were conducted in patients for the approved indication, whether there are public results for those patient trials. Then we looked at whether companies are actually sharing the patient-level data from the trials. And then we look at a very small sample of trials, which are, are those trials that are legally required to be public, to have public results, whether those are um, public in compliance with U.S. federal law. So what you can see here is that we benchmark three things, a floor below which no company should fall, right? Follow the law and disclose what you're supposed to disclose, a slightly higher benchmark, which is um, disclose all trials and patients, and then an, an even higher but currently uh, emerging standard, which is share the patient-level data. And the low-scoring companies, what you'll notice, are having trouble meeting the floor, right? They're, some of their drugs are not fully compliant with U.S. Um, legal requirements, and they're, you know, they're not disclosing all the results of their trials and patients. Now, Jeremy, with Scientific American, you guys, well, you're all over the place with science. We got to give you that. That's an acknowledgement. <laughs> and you have been for a long, long, long time. 175 years, actually. 175 years, exactly. And uh, I guess my wonderment is I never really associated you with this level of detail or this insight into the pharmaceutical market and, and how it affects people. Is this new or have have we seen this for a while? Well, you know, our editorial remit for many years has been science in the service of humanity. And when you look at the health ecosystem, there are many parts to it. There's the science itself. There's the policy that can help get it through. There, of course, is the industry. And that is what scales innovation. You know, there's nothing wrong with having, you know, health be both a right, but let's face it, health is a business. And if, if done ethically, the business of health can keep costs low, can scale innovation. This was a media collaboration with our with our partnering division, that, which actually does interesting, slightly more vertical programs. So there's the main flagship Scientific American, but as you know, there are offshoots of it. We, you know, I had, I had ran the Worldview Enterprise for many years, which was a ranking itself. And in fact, one of Jennifer's advisors, who I know well from a long time ago, worked on a global health project, Steve Samet at Wharton, is the one that, that got us together. You know, we had been doing this ranking of global life science innovation for many years, and I've been on this show talking about that. And when I met Jennifer, she's, she was doing a ranking, but it was of a specific industry. It was fascinating, and behind it was a lot of interesting you know, data points. The mission of it was to 
really try to advance a conversation of transparency for an industry that, as the last year will attest to, is one of the most important in the world. This project started, of course, before the pandemic, and boy, is the topic of ethics and medicine more relevant than ever. But we had no idea that was going to be the state of affairs. Our interest in this was definitely to advance this conversation. It was a project we wanted to support. And, you know, Jennifer, I think, was of the mindset that what she had been doing, which was really for a policy and an industry set, could have you know, an appeal to a wider consumer and, and, you know, larger set of stakeholders. So it was it was great for both of our organizations to come together and produce excellent content. Obviously, the Good Farm Scorecard is the heart and soul of this. But then we added, you know, the ability to, to kind of tell more narrative stories around general topics that come up when it comes to, you know, pregnant women and their participation in clinical trials, you know, the exploitation or potential exploitation of African genomes, which are of such interest to, to researchers. So there are so many stories within this. I'm really glad that you mentioned your mission of Scientific American, Jeremy, because it reminded me of exactly why it made so much sense for us to collaborate, which is, was it's the same question that we were asking. You know, how do we make science serve humanity? You know, what does it mean for science to be at the service of humanity? And we were looking at one specific aspect of science, life sciences, the pharmaceutical industry and drug development in particular. And our mission and the goal of the Good Pharma Scorecard is to define what does it mean for the pharmaceutical industry to be at the service of humanity and patients. So what are concrete standards and measures we should be looking for? And how do we know when they've been credibly implemented and achieved, right? So it's important for us to achieve a sector that's serving humanity and patients, but also to signal that to humanity and patients um, to credibly build trust, to have a trustworthy and trusted system. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guests today are Jennifer Miller and Jeremy Abbott. Dr. Miller is an assistant professor at the Yale University School of Medicine and the founder of Bioethics International and the Good Pharma Scorecard. Jeremy Abbott is the publisher and vice president of Scientific American, the oldest continuously publishing monthly magazine in the United States. Today, we're talking about good medicine, health, ethics and innovation. It's a collaboration between Bioethics International and Scientific American and available at goodmedicine.center. Well, it's just 28 pages long, but it's chock full of a lot of stuff, I gotta say. (laughs) Not even tiny print. It's just very, very pointed topics. The subtitle to Good Medicine is Health ethics and innovation. And we have seen more innovation this year in the middle of a global pandemic. We've managed to produce several COVID vaccines, which take time to roll out and money to buy. It's almost a perfect case study for how we balance health, ethics, and information. I would agree. Uh, and, And we, again, didn't know what the world had in store for us when we began this program. But Obviously, what has been borne out is a testament to some of the big topics and themes that we explore in this media program, data sharing. You know, if you look at why we had a vaccine so fast, you know, the 
genome of this virus published very fast. Scientists all over the world could, you know, kind of explore it. You have seen collaboration among industry, the obvious one, you know, Johnson Johnson and Merck getting together to make sure that that vaccine was produced. So this has really focused people's attention on the importance of the health industry and the science driving it and how it can translate into scalable solutions for the world's biggest problems. And uh, also just a way, you know, a, a chance for the industry to show it can behave ethically. You know, I think one of the motivations, and I'll let Jennifer speak to this, and one of the motivations for starting the project years ago was you know, scandals and the fact that there was it was an industry that, that's ranked so low when it comes to trust, I think just above the tobacco industry. And there are reasons to celebrate this industry. Of course, there are bad actors in every industry. That's just the way it goes. But obviously, there are Nobel laureates working for this industry. So there are things to celebrate. And I think just opening the door to a wider discussion of how, where is that intersection between health ethics and innovation, as the subtitle would, would, would show, was an interest, I think, you know, something that was very in, interesting to, to everyone. Yeah, there are things to celebrate, areas where we need reform, and also new and emerging ethics questions. Um, right with COVID-19 alone, we had questions about, you know, how long can you keep uh, vaccine trial participants on a placebo? When do you need to cross them over to an active vaccine when you have interim um seemingly positive clinical trial results, right? These were sort of newer or newish questions. Um, you know, if one vaccine is authorized, what does that mean for other vaccines being studied and their placebo arms, right? So good medicine aims to talk about all of the ethics, right? The good, the bad, and the new. And how can we move forward together collaboratively in a way that really helps all of us? Part of this has to do with money. I mean, the United States has now purchased if even if it may not have yet received it's it's purchased more uh, vaccine more covid vaccine than it actually needs and yet there are countries out there who don't have the money to buy any of it do you address issues like that those are the exact questions that we're looking to explore together right so what does the just allocation of vaccines look like domestically within countries across countries across the globe, um, but at different levels, right? Pharmaceutical companies are deciding who to sell vaccines to, who will be um, the first recipients in the distribution plan. Um, countries are deciding how to allocate within um, their, their borders. And exactly like you said, what to do with excess, with supplies that aren't being immediately used. These are very difficult questions. Go ahead, Jeremy. No, I was going to say this is a this is an ongoing question, and and certainly the dynamics change week to week, month to month, sometimes day to day. the The first iteration of Good Medicine was completed, you know, summer fall last year, so we didn't have a chance to explore all of the very relevant questions in the equitable distribution of vaccines, but we we intend to. So there will be refreshed content on this. There'll be other events and, and discussions around it. But that is, again, goes to the heart of looking at that relationship between a health industry from an ethical perspective. Nothing has really, uh, I think, shown the world how inextricably we are linked as a human race than, than, than the tragedy of the last year plus. Because, you know, the whole the old adage, 
we're not safe until everyone's safe, no one's safe. The fact is we have to work toward equitable distribution, not just of vaccines, but this is a this is a philosophical point that can apply to so many other areas of health. And I think global health is a is a topic that for so long has been seen by many as you know, this is this is the other. This is this happens somewhere else in the world and to other people. But no, global health is all of us. And I think, you know, not that there's silver linings to tragedies, but I'm my, my hope is that in the future, we are much more sensitive to that because of you know, putting on the ethical lens that we have been forced to do through the exigencies of of the world around us and also through the program that we are starting with with good medicine. To some degree, the magazine aims to blend the high-level questions and, and, and themes that come up with specific cases, right? So COVID-19 is, a specific, is raising specific ethics questions that are part of broader themes um, that transcend life sciences and beyond science, right? So this question of is what's happening with globalization, right? Is globalization... Where are we? Are, are our international and transnational um, um, collaborations working, right? Uh, how do we collaborate together? These are larger questions that are playing out with the current context, right, with the questions. Uh, other larger themes that we're looking to explore are, you know, should companies just be pursuing profits, particularly in healthcare, or, or should they be pursuing other goals with the same vigor and with the same um, type of accountability, right? Are there other measures we should be thinking about holding companies uh, accountable to, public companies beyond financial measures? Uh, And how would you set those measures, right? And so we tend to look at broad themes and then very specific cases. Now, I think you've learned that I'm a big subtitle person. Uh, I'm afraid (laughs) you you know this. One of the articles in Good Medicine had a subtitle, Drugs are disproportionately tested on people who are young, white, and male. I didn't know that. Yes. So that's the next one of the next topics we want to address with the Good Pharma Scorecard. And we included um, a broad thematic piece talking about exactly what you said. Drugs tend to be tested on younger, healthier, whiter, and more often male patients than typical patients with each condition, with each disease. Um, And so what we want to do together is not only talk about the problem, but the opportunity to, and how we can improve things. So what does, what does good demographic representation and inclusion in research look like? And how do we know when we've achieved it? So the next Good Pharma Scorecard is actually developing demographic um, inclusion and representation measures, and we'll be benchmarking companies and products uh, on how inclusive they are and representative in terms of um, sex, age, race, ethnicity, and, and other variables. And again, you know, world events have made this topic front of mind. You think about the questions that have, you know, come up with the vaccines. And I I was doing a panel with the American uh, Diabetes Association a few weeks ago around, okay, are the vaccines safe for for diabetics and have they been tested in diabetics and other, other, of course, at-risk populations, those concerns come up. So uh, again, this is, you know, been, been, been cast in such stark relief. It's been underscored so much by the events of, of this past year. All of these topics would have been relevant in any year. But, you know, again, more so because you have the average person on the street 
suddenly understanding what a phase two clinical trial is. So never before, I think, has there been such engagement in even the very nomenclature of drug discovery and therapeutic development, which is a good thing. It's tragic why it had to happen, but the fact is, you know, there's more attention to this. So yes, the idea of equity and and fair trials and more representative trials, big topic. You've been listening to Yale University professor Jennifer Miller and Scientific American publisher Jeremy Abbott. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, repurposing existing drugs in the effort to treat COVID-19 and what it takes to get people from abandoning their personal health tech products. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Yale Medical School professor Jennifer Miller and Jeremy Abbott, the publisher and vice president of Scientific American. There's also a discussion about testing drugs on pregnant women. That used to be completely forbidden, but we do it now? Certain groups of people used to be uh, considered vulnerable populations, and in order to protect them, we traditionally excluded them from research. But some of the the result would be that you'd end up with therapeutic orphans, meaning we wouldn't know how or necessarily know how drugs and vaccines work for the excluded populations, the populations that weren't included in research. And one of those big groups is uh, pregnant and lactating women, along with other groups like prisoners and the like. So we wanted to ask, you know, how do you responsibly develop evidence for this group of patients that take a lot of medicines, right? And who use medicines um, because without the evidence, you end up experimenting with them without collecting the data, right? They end up taking the drugs, but you don't have the evidence and then you don't collect the evidence from that clinical encounter. And and just to pick another one, let's touch on something uh, that we only know because we could now decode anyone's DNA. Uh, first of all, drug testing needs diversity. 
And there's tremendous diversity throughout Africa, which makes the DNA of Africans very valuable. This is another great area where it's the intersection of science, business, ethics. The idea is, yes, there are populations that have you know, so much to offer science, but we want to make sure those populations aren't exploited for that information. Data is, you know, an an economic asset in this day and age. We need to make sure there's equitability in, 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 you know, where you get your, you know, your economic assets, in this case, data. Yeah. So genomic-based medicine, formerly also called personalized medicine, is based on a data set that's overwhelmingly uh, white or Western or Northern European. Um, it's not representative of the global population. And so from a population health perspective, you don't want to leave anyone behind, right? No one left behind, which means you need to include um, diverse and representative set of um, genomic information. Um, but there have there this raises questions of you know how do you responsibly access people's genomic information? Who owns that data? What are people owed in resp- in in return for for sharing their information? The final thing I'd like to ask you, which is touched on, but I'd like to see what your feelings are, both of you, um, is that science is moving at a pace that is unprecedented. What is your sense of the long-term effects on non-COVID health development and innovation uh, because of what we're experiencing here today? Well, it sounds like you just uh, uh, came up with a new topic for one of our next issues. Uh, You know, what lessons can we learn from the way that we develop the COVID vaccines, right? Are there any generalizable best practices there in terms of public-private partnerships, um, you know, drug distribution, pricing? You know, how can we do things in a non-pandemic setting um, better? Yeah, I would agree. A huge open question is, can we leverage this success in other areas? Certainly, it's different when you have a, a viral genome that's accessible, and and you've got you know a lot of the infrastructure for these vaccines had already been developed. We you know we learned a lot about viruses and vaccines. Certainly, the HIV pandemic, you know, kind of set that agenda. Um, but science builds on itself, and not that suddenly tomorrow we'll have an answer for Alzheimer's or some of the most fundamentally you know uh, complex questions in in health and other areas. But I would like to think. Some of what we learn, some of what the, some of the success stories can be leveraged. Certainly, this is the era of the preprint. The preprint has had its big moment, where you know you're not waiting for peer review, but you're going to you know looking at looking at these journal articles that are published before that. Um, get you know gaining access, you know data sharing from an early point on in the in the innovation uh, chain. Um, so I, I think there is a lot lot to learn, but you know we don't want to make it seem like science solves everything fast because because it doesn't. And I think there's, you know, one of the things I'm actually working right now on an op-ed piece around hype versus hope in science. And we can become victims of our success. You know, this year is the 100th anniversary of insulin, which was kind of an overnight success for people with diabetes in the early 1920s. I mean, that was a disease that would kill you. And suddenly overnight, it became a chronic manageable condition. That's not going to always happen. And we've seen it happen with certain cancers. We've certainly seen it happen again, HIV. Um, 
Will, will there be populations waiting for a magic bullet? Probably. Will we be able to get them a magic bullet? Unfortunately, probably not, but we certainly can build on our successes and, and learn anytime there is a great development. Let's do more of what works and do less of what doesn't, is, is my opinion. Well, people must think that there are, you know, this must be a 300 page uh, effort. It's There's so much in these 28 pages. And I, I just want to thank both of you for coming on and sharing with you both the motivation and what's in there, giving a little taste of that. And uh, I hope both of you will come back and see us again. Thanks, Mara. Thanks, Mara. This is uh, always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. My guests today are Jennifer Miller and Jeremy Abbott. We're talking about good medicine, health, ethics, and innovation, a collaboration between Bioethics International and Scientific American. It's available at goodmedicine.center. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. It's one thing to develop a new drug, but it's faster to repurpose an already proven existing drug for a new use a valuable lesson in the fight against COVID. TechNation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft. Well, I think we're still, you know, we're one year essentially into the COVID pandemic. Uh, there's been a huge amount of activity on testing, vaccines, and of course, therapy. And there really haven't been many therapies available, particularly for folks as outpatients to help uh, prevent the disease or give them uh, less um, acute cases where they might end up hospitalized or, or worse. And so there's been a lot of interest. Uh, you might remember the famous press conference with our former president uh, promulgating bleach and, uh, and uh, bl- bl- uh, other uh, potentially controversial approaches, one of which included you know, the, the drug hydroxychloroquine, a classic uh, drug often used uh, for malaria or some autoimmune diseases, which was sort of promoted very quickly and, and several trials later on downstream showed not to be particularly effective and maybe even harmful in some settings. And the idea about using a drug like like hydroxychloroquine, which did not show efficacy in, in COVID in the end, is that it's the idea of what's often called repurposing of existing drugs, drugs that were are already, let's say, FDA approved, hopefully have a good safety and efficacy profile for another disease, but might have activity uh, across a different indication. In this case, for treating a viral infection like coronavirus. The classic example of a repurposed drug most people will be familiar with is the drug Viagra, used for uh, in some folks for erectile dysfunction. But Viagra, in a sense, uh, it's generic, uh, is actually um, sildafinil, and it was originally uh, used to treat pulmonary arterial hypertension and would sort of relax the blood vessels in the lungs, but clearly had some secondary side effects, uh, which were then a much bigger market for erectile dysfunction. In the setting of COVID, obviously a very uh, large unmet need, a large market per se, there's been a lot of activity looking at what other drugs uh, might be might be useful. We mentioned hydroxychloroquine, which was not uh, beneficial, uh, had a lot of hype and very small, often what we call anecdotal reports. But there's been some other um, activity that's been quite promising. Um, uh, back in 2019, uh, someone was studying the drug fluvoxamine, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor called an SSRI. that's actually used uh, for many years for treating patients with obsessive compulsive disorder. And they found out that it seemed to have uh, an affinity uh, for the S1R receptor that uh, can play a role in reducing cytokine production, which is part of that inflammatory response that happens in the setting of, of viral infections, which is often why many folks get very sick with COVID, not from the virus per se, but the immune response back. 
And so the theory that this drug, fluvoxamine, which again was already FDA approved and used for years, has a good safety profile, uh, could be used, uh, went through initial trial at Washington University and looked like it was uh, quite effective in a small initial trial. The word sort of uh, got out and it started being used kind of off-label. There was an example uh, in San Francisco uh, at, a, at, a, at a location where they were... Um, a lot of folks training horses and a whole group of folks got better. And the clinician there who'd heard about this tried it out. And essentially in the bottom line uh, of the 50 folks or so who took the fluvoxamine, none of them ended up in the hospital and very few, if any, had any what are called long COVID or long-term effects. And those who elected not to take the drug, about 10 to 20% uh, ended up in, in, in the hospital or with significant uh, complications. And so that then opened up this drug to, to future use. Um, there's a San Francisco Bay Area uh, well-known entrepreneur named Steve Kirsch, one of the founders of InfoSeq, but a, a, a big-time philanthropist as well, who got word of this and helped fund a whole clinical trial, again, extended at Washington University for this drug, drug called fluvoxamine, uh, which um, in a phase two trial uh, showed it was quite promising. They, they used this in the outpatient setting, so folks who have just been diagnosed with COVID um, and uh, essentially in the group that got fluvoxamine compared to the randomized placebo, uh, eight uh, there was an eight percent, almost a nine percent difference. None of the folks who got fluvoxamine ended up in the hospital. Zero out of eighty, and six of seventy-two who got the placebo ended up uh, in the hospital, and and some having longer-term complications. And so that was a phase two trial published in February uh, this year in, in JAMA, and it spurred a lot of other interest. And now there's a phase three trial, um, and the way these sort of trials now work is that they can be, you know, you're not coming to the hospital. We're now in this virtual age, talking on Zoom and, and uh, other, other ways, ways of being socially distanced. Now you can sign up for the trial. A colleague of mine had COVID. He, he got a little notification on Facebook saying, hey, have you been recently diagnosed with COVID? Would you like to be part of a clinical trial? Pressed the button, got a call from WashU, uh, went through some questions. The next day, arrived by FedEx, his pack of, of the medication, whether it might have been the placebo or the active arm, plus a pulse oximeter, I think a blood pressure cuff and a thermometer, and basically a, an online app to record symptoms and pathologies. And that's an example of a very quick way now to do a clinical trial, get it out to fo folks through the mail and record the results and impact. And I think we're seeing some fluvoxamine, it, it's still being looked at in phase three trials, but it has been showing very impressive promise. The challenge is when you have a drug like this, that's repurposed, has a good safety profile, um, how does it get through the FDA? Um, you've heard of this EUA, emergency use authorization that we've seen for the for the for mostly the vaccines that have come to market. How do we speed that up for promising drugs like like this one? Or how do we better uh, weed out the ones that are not going to work? So there's still a challenge because it might take two or three months or more to get the phase three trial results out and to get it through the FDA. And in that period of time, you know, maybe several you know thousands to hundred thousands of folks could have been. Uh, treated and potentially their lives saved. So there's a bit of a dynamic there. And I think that's just one example of many drugs being looked at. Other ones include drugs like ivermectin, which is an anti-worm pill, um, which has showed some promise in early trials. Uh, we're speaking now in, in early March of 2021, a new study came out showing it doesn't look like it's that effective uh, in, a, in a recent trial. Uh, it shortened the course by maybe one or two days compared to those who took the placebo, which may or not yet be significantly uh, significant. So Interesting time now to use old drugs for new purposes, um, and it's sort of part of this future of health and medicine. And when you say placebo, in some cases, they're getting sugar tablets or salt water. 
And in other cases, they're getting some specified standard of care, like they're not left without treatment. Right. Well, in most cases, you know, the vast majority of folks who've, who've gotten COVID uh, do okay, you know, and they're at home, they feel fluish, you know, some go and have a cough and might have some respiratory ailments, but not to the point where they need to come to the hospital. There's been a lot of sort of hype around, let's say, vitamin C and taking vitamin D and zinc and uh, quartin and other sort of, you know, uh, other sorts of uh, non-pharmaceutical drugs sort of, uh, and, and some of those show some promise. Retrospectively, patients who have been deficient in vitamin D have done much worse and end up, you know, in the intensive care unit. So there may be a benefit to at least having a normal level of vitamin D. Other ones like super high levels of vitamin C uh, and zinc uh, really haven't proven themselves out in recent larger trials. So um, when we're talking about placebo in the case of fluvoxamine, they'd either give you the pills look identical. You don't know what you have in them. In one case, they have the active ingredient, the pharmaceutical ingredient. The other one, I assume, have some sort of sugar or other benign inert material. Um, and that's the whole idea behind what's often called a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. The patient doesn't know whether they're taking the drug, and the clinicians, the trialists, don't know until they unblind it. And that's sort of the op- open the envelope and see you know, how many patients got sick, what were their oxygen saturations? How long did it take them to recover? So it's not just did this new potentially repurposed drug sort of work in terms of did it keep people out of the hospital, but did it shorten their course? Did they have less respiratory complications? Were their fevers reduced? Lots of things we can start to measure uh, in these sort of virtualized trial settings. So there are a few other drugs that are showing promise that are being studied in larger trials. You know, the trick is you need to have a trial that's often large enough to convince, let's say, the FDA or medical experts that this is something that's going to become, let's say, standard of care. We have seen other generic type drugs be quite effective. The most impactful so far for patients in the hospital with respiratory issues is dexamethasone, you know, big gun steroid. Um, but, you know, more benign, let's say, outpatient drugs, we mentioned ivermectin. Um, there's a drug called Camostat, which is uh, uh, an inhibitor of a particular part of the inflammatory pathway. And there are uh, interim trials right now, but are taking a long time. Um, there's a drug called uh, doxazosin that Bert Vogelstein, a famous oncologist, shows a very clear mechanism of action. And there's a trial that's going to be starting at Johns Hopkins. It's, it's recently started. It looks promising. Um, and even an antihistamine called cryptoheptadine. So lots of drugs out there. Famotidine, which is a drug often used uh, for, as an H2 blocker, meaning helps reduce acid in your stomach. So hopefully um, organizations like uh, the center, one called CETF, C-E-T-F, uh, which is uh, funded by philanthropists, are trying to speed up the ability to study these sorts of drugs, uh, get them to market more quickly, and really hopefully fast track when appropriate through the FDA so that Clinicians out there know that there are options uh, that are effective and safe for treating particularly outpatients with coronavirus so we prevent them from ever needing hospitalization or more importantly uh, as well uh, preventing often what's called long long COVID, which we talked about in prior episodes where um, some patients may even have a mild course initially but have long stream issues with neurologic issues, with their lungs, with their heart, with energy uh, and, and beyond. Old dogs, new tricks. I like it. Old dogs, new tricks. And it means... We don't need to go through often the 10-year pathway of you know discovering a new molecule, uh, doing phase one trials or preclinical, then phase one, phase two, phase three. And the setting of coronavirus, we can't take years to get things uh, into the clinic. And as we've seen, COVID as a catalyst, uh, as exemplified by the vaccines coming to market, we've sped up the ability to do trials when we need to uh, in, in safe and effective ways. And my hope, you know, the downstream benefits of 
you know, the silver lining of, of the coronavirus pandemic is that some of these new pathways, some of these new ways of doing virtualized trials, virtual care, telehealth is going to accelerate um, better solutions for other infectious and non-infectious diseases going forward. Well, Daniel, thanks so much for coming in. See you soon. See you soon, Maura. Thanks. Stay safe. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is a physician, scientist, and innovator. More information is available at danielcraftmd.net. You're listening to Tech Nation. Have an abandoned fitness wristband in your desk? How about a lonely exercise bike? The solution may not be more or better technology. Rick Anderson is the president and general manager for North America at Dario Health. Well, Rick, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Now, we have a number of digital health technologies today from Fitbits to apps on Apple Watches to bicycles under your desk to trackers for diabetes and weight control and for every chronic condition under the sun. Why are so many of these devices used for just a short period of time and then they are abandoned? Well, we think that the primary reason is is that people lose interest in them over time if they are not personalized to their experience. So they need to provide value and continue to provide value to a member uh, or a patient in order for them to continue to use it. And, you know, like you said, in a lot of cases, we see people will stop using whatever devices within, uh, you know, 90 days or three months around that. And, you know, a lot of that is, is that they've gotten the value out of it that they were going to get, or they get bored with it, or something else happens in their life, and therefore they get distracted from doing it. So being able to personalize and not just you know, fingerprint to somebody, hey, you look like somebody else who went through a journey that looks like this, but actually have that change over a period of time in order to be able to be relevant to that member. So, you know, what I might want to do today, I might not be willing to do tomorrow and vice versa, or, you know, maybe I have back pain now, so I'm not focused on my other chronic condition. So, you know, how can those digital applications really take all of that into account and provide people value at every point during the process? How do you second guess that? <laughs> How do you figure that one out? That's that's a real challenge, Rick. Yeah, and you know, really this is the advancement of what digital health is becoming. We have, you know, all kinds of data that we can collect. You know, at Dario we're collecting more than 5 billion data points a year across a variety of domains, you know, both passively and actively in member uh, input data. And by being able to take that data and put it through an AI journey engine, we really can use the data for a force of good and understand what the member is doing, how they want to interact and what they're willing to do and not do, and therefore adjust the journey over a period of time or what we call dynamic personalization across the journey. Now, Dario Health has been working in this direct-to-consumer space for seven years, really at sort of the beginning of this, you know, personal mobile app revolution of of being able to use so many of these devices. Um, What are the various areas that you're able to provide support in? So as a digital therapeutic company, we started in diabetes and then expanded into hypertension 
um, and then expanded into pre-diabetes and weight management and recently added uh, musculoskeletal um, conditions as part of what we're managing. And we're looking to continue to add uh, conditions that will be useful and are you know, exist with the existing condition. So there's a, a high level of people who have diabetes that also have hypertension, for example, and, and roughly a third of the people who have diabetes have musculoskeletal issues as well. So it's the ability to really provide that integrated experience to members around that personalization piece. Now, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar. What do you mean by muscular skeletal? Uh, I, I didn't even say it right. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> Yeah, so a lot of times we think about that is uh, orthopedics. So really, what it is is pain. My I have lower back pain, or you know maybe I'm out uh, being a weekend warrior and I hurt my shoulder because I'm, you know, I can't quite do anymore. My body can't quite do anymore what my mind thinks it can do, and you know I, I I take it too far, and that generates pain. So you know also pain can be generated by um, you know weight. And the way that, you know, the posture that we sit in, et cetera. So, you know, more sedentary lifestyles tend to have, you know, more MSK pain or, like I said, the weekend warriors associated with it. So when we talk about musculoskeletal, we're, we're primarily talking about pain uh, that relates to the joints and the muscles. I think part of the importance here is that many of these things are related in for people. So you could get something for weight management and get something for your pain but they all kind of need to be integrated. Yeah, you you really have to address the whole person. I mean, uh, the patients are really more than the sum of their conditions, and it's also the behaviors that play through all of those things together. So having an integrated approach is part of that personalization uh, for members and deriving that value. Like I said, you know, people can move back and forth between what's their priority. Am I trying to manage my weight today, or am I worried about my glucose, or, you know, I now have back pain, and that's becoming an issue for me. Well, I'm really glad that you have AI at Dario Health, <laughs> artificial intelligence. Who can live without it? But you have a secret. You have a secret here. It's not just about technology or AI. Uh, you actually have people, actual counselors. I think uh, they might be some real intelligence there. What do the uh, what do the ca- counselors do? Well, you know, it's really, again, it's, it's, it's all of the pieces. So it's the connected devices. So we have, um, you know, glucose monitors, we have blood pressure monitors, uh, we have sensors related to uh, the musculoskeletal and, and pain and range of motion and things like that. And that gives you the biofeedback piece. And the AI engine can help deliver and coach digitally. But the other thing that it can do is really bring in the coaches, as you mentioned. And we have two types of coaches. You know, what we have coaches that are primarily focused on engagement and teaching people how to utilize uh, the information that they're getting and the application itself. And then we have what we like to call clinical coaches, and these would be the experts in the field. So, you know, dietitians, nurses, uh, diabetes educators, et cetera, that can help the members with particular issues that they have. And we use the AI to both help those coaches and really kind of make them superhuman. So help them understand what's going on with those members. And then those coaches can, you know, add the personal touch and the empathy that is really missing from a completely digital solution. And, you know, what we see is, is the behavior change is what happens when people um, are working with others that they believe care about them. And we believe that the coaches really can can drive that piece of the puzzle. This is very interesting, this parallel effort, because 
no matter how good the coaches are, they can't just look at a couple of numbers and figure out what's going on. AI can go into the depth of when and how an instrument is being used, how it how it is in comparison to others. It can draw a picture that they're unable to see. It's almost like you need both to be optimal. And machines can think in many more dimensions than humans and recognize patterns that we don't recognize and serve that up in a way that we can use it to really add that human element back into the system. Now, my hunch about this parallel humans and artificial intelligence, real intelligence and artificial intelligence together is only a hunch. Do we have a way to measure if the inclusion of the human element is more successful than leaving people literally to their own devices? Yes. I mean, we can look at things like, you know, how much are people retained uh, on a platform or in a service or in a treatment based on having humans involved in it and not. Um, you know, we have what looks like about an 80% retention rate, and we see that drop off um, fairly significantly if you take the humans completely out of that process. And really, you know, this also goes back to the personalization aspect in that everybody likes to communicate differently. And that's part of, you know, maintaining that engagement. If I want to communicate, you know, asynchronously, digitally with people, um, you know, part of the time, and then I want to communicate with humans, if there's no human, then I'd lose interest in what it is. And that's an exit node for me. And I I will stop using the process because I won't view that I'm getting out of it what I need. So with the humans involved, uh, we're seeing 80% stay on uh, whatever devices or applications that they're using. What about, uh, do we have data? Do we have data for when humans aren't a part of the picture? You know, it, it depends on the solution, but you can see that retention dropping down to, you know, in the 30, 40 percent fairly quickly for most solutions that don't have humans in there. Now, I would imagine that some of this could be covered by health insurance. So health plans and um, employers and other people that are paying the bills are very interested in how do we improve clinical outcomes for the patients and the members, and how do we reduce the cost of delivering that quality care? So it's really combining the two pieces of higher quality care that has high satisfaction and that reduces cost, the triple aim. Well, this has been terrific, Rick. I hope you come back to see us again. Well, thank you very much for having me. Rick Anderson is the president and general manager for North America at Dario Health. More information is available at Dario, that's D-A-R-I-O, DarioHealth.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos, and audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.